my task today is to try to help you to make missions personal, to make his message our mission, to help you to understand what you can do to reach a world for Christ. The difference that you can make in your life with what God has given you to change the world for Christ. Probably the best explanation of that is found in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the second letter that he wrote to the Corinthians, chapter 5 and verse 14. <clears throat> These verses remind us of the fact that there is not a missionary arm of the church, that we are, in fact, all of us, the missionary arm of the church. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says, For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, having concluded that the love of Christ, in fact, controls us, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, that they who live, that's being us as believers, should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. The first thing I want you to see this morning is that there is a, a determination of the self-life. A termination of the self-life. Notice that Paul says, the love of Christ controls us. That word control means to be confined within a certain course of action which never deviates from that set purpose. Never swaying off the track, staying focused. We would say in the 90s, that's a word to say the love of Christ makes us driven people. We are driven, we are directed, we are focused because of the love of Christ. One translation reads, the love of Christ restrains us. It keeps us on track. It keeps us hemmed in. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown in their commentary on this passage said, there is an irresistible object that has so controlled the life of a Christian that he lives with only one objective in view, the elimination of any other possible consideration. You see, when the love of Christ controls us, then we don't jump from spiritual experience to spiritual experience. We don't get on that roller coaster ride of up and down spiritual emotions. We live with a purpose. We live with a goal. We live with a direction in our lives. There's a reason for what we do and why we do it. And there are two things about this termination of the self-life. First of all, Jesus Christ died to extinguish the old life. Jesus Christ died to extinguish the old life. When Paul writes, one died for all, and therefore all died, he is referring back to Calvary. Paul looks at Calvary, and he doesn't just see the life of our Lord hanging on that cross to pay the price for our sin. He sees himself on that cross. One died for all, therefore all died. Paul is looking back and saying, Jesus died, but I also died with him. It is a picture of the substitutionary death of Christ and our identification with that death. Jesus Christ died to extinguish the old life. He died to save us from sin, singular. Now, we commit sins, plural, but Christ died to save us from the sin principle, from sin, singular, that affects us and causes us to sin, plural. And Paul says, one died for all. The most liberating discovery you will ever make in your life, and the day that you make a major step forward in your Christian faith is the day that you come to understand that you are no longer in bondage to your old life. You do not have to live under the bondage of your past. You do not have to live under the guilt of your past. You do not have to live under the restraints of your past. There are new restraints in your life. And those restraints are the restraints of Christ. Christ died, therefore all died. Kind of does away with that 
line of reasoning that some people use, well, you know, I just can't help myself. I, you know, I just, it's just the weakness of my flesh. Paul says, when Christ died, he died so that you could die. To that old nature, to that old way of thinking, Stuart Briscoe says, if the wages of sin is death, if Christ died for our sins, and God looks upon us as if we died with Christ, then the wages of our sin have been paid. The punishment for our sin has already been meted out, and we have already been judged in Christ. Now, if Christ died to extinguish the old life, that means if I understand and believe that my sin was so wretched that God had to send his son to die to pay the price for my sin, Yet I continue to want to live in sin and live in disobedience and live in rebellion, then I am in fact loving the very thing that God hated enough to die for it. I am in fact saying that the very thing that Jesus Christ died to save me from, I love more than I love him. And yet Jesus Christ died to put away the old man, to put away with the sin nature. I died positionally with him, and every day I follow the words of Christ who says, take up your cross daily. Die daily, moment by moment, day by day. We choose to sin. We can also choose to not sin. Secondly, we must die to the old life. Now notice what he says. Christ's love controls us, having concluded this. Paul has reached a non-negotiable conclusion. One of the things that you'll find out about the Word of God is that the Word of God is never soft on sin. It never goes easy. It never shaves off any corners. It never takes black and white and mix it into a shade of gray. Paul says that Christ died, therefore all died. His love controls us, and I have concluded something. What is it that he has concluded? It's found in verse 15. That they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him. John Calvin said, I give God everything. I keep nothing for myself. The old hymn says, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, and my all. That they should no longer live for themselves. That's a tough truth at Christmas, isn't it? See, I wrote a column, All I Want for Christmas. Had a full page, all things I'd like to get for Christmas. Paul says that they should no longer live for themselves. That it's no longer my life, it's to be his life. Now what's going to restrain me? What's going to control me? What's going to keep me on that kind of track? What's going to make me focus that way? In my list of Christmas gifts that I need to buy and things that I want and all the shopping sprees and fighting the mall and dealing with everything else, what's going to keep me focused on that? The love of Christ. The love of Christ keeps me focused that I'm supposed to die to my old self to my old desires, to my old wants, to my old flesh, that I am to die to that. And the love of Christ kindles in us a love for him. Because he loved us, we love him. You would ask, why do you do what you do? Because of the love of the Christ. Why do you not do some things? Because of love for Christ. There's not only the termination of the self-life, but there is the introduction of the faith life in verse 16. Therefore, from now on, in light of the fact that the love of Christ controls us and we no longer live for ourselves, from now on, we recognize no man according to the flesh. Paul's understanding of the cross transformed his understanding of man. Now, you need to know how significant that is because in Paul's time and in his culture, the Samaritans were considered half-breed dogs. 
the Gentiles were considered unworthy of the gospel. Paul comes to the conclusion after having come to Christ and saying, in Christ there is no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, barbarian or Greek, for all are one in Christ. And so Paul says that there's a new way of looking at things. First of all, we have a new concept of man. We no longer judge man by his external appearance. Beginning in January, we're going to do a study on Sunday nights in the book of James. And in the book of James, it talks there about how people receive people based on how they look. Paul is saying when we are in Christ, we don't receive based on the way someone is dressed or on what kind of sculptured body they have or what kind of tan they have or the external appearances. Paul's issue was not color. It was not culture. It was not creed. It was not class. Paul's one standard was Christ. Paul approached every man with one condition. I have a new concept and a new understanding of man. Everyone I meet is either in Christ or they are apart from Christ. There's no in-between. It doesn't matter what they look like. It doesn't matter what their background. It doesn't matter where they live, what they have or what they don't have. The one issue in life is whether they know Jesus Christ. You and I, if we're ever going to make his message our mission, have got to become people where the only issue about people is do they know Christ? Not what they look like, not what they smell like, not even what they act like. If they act a certain way, it's because they don't have Christ. But you see, when the love of Christ controls us, there is a lot of junk in our lives we can lay aside. A new concept of man. Not only that, we have a new concept of man because of verse 17. We are a new creation in Christ. This is the most familiar verse in this passage. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. This is Paul's definition of a Christian. You want to know how Paul would define somebody who is in Christ? He would say, they are being created continually in newness. That Greek word is in the tense. It means the act of creating. It is God recreating, God reconstructing, God restructuring our lives. God creating in us something which is new in our lives. The book of Isaiah said that when he came, he would make all things new. We no longer live for ourselves. We live for him. We are new creations. The biggest detriment to the gospel of Jesus Christ today is the fact that people claim to be Christians and yet do not live like new creations. And they try to excuse their behavior or excuse their sin or excuse their attitude. Paul says unconditionally, if you are in Christ, you are different than you were before you came to Christ. You are a new creation. Alan Redpath says, people have forgotten their spiritual obligations in their vast enjoyment of material luxury and think that they can do anything they please just as long as they have a quiet time. Now let me just take that and expand it a little bit. There are people all over America today who are going to churches, there may be some in this room. You think you can do anything you please just as long as you occasion the church house with your presence. You think you can do anything you please as long as on Sunday nights you watch Charles Stanley. You think you can do anything you please as long as you give a dollar or two to the Gideons once a year. You think you can do anything you please, act any way you want to act, as long as you are nice to people most of the time. My friends, the gospel says to you, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your southern cotton-picking body. It means you don't have a right to do what you want to do as long as you keep your quiet time. 
You are a new creation created unto God for good works. You are a new creation. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, you are not your own. You are a new creation. It means that you look at life, you look at yourself, you look at others, you look at the world through a different set of eyes than you ever had before. Why? Because there's a faith life that has been birthed inside of you. Something has happened inside of you, and it's moved you from a what's in it to me and me first mentality to what's in it for God and how can I glorify Him. Thirdly, there's the operation of the Christ life. Look at verse 18. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Everything about Jesus Christ points to reconciliation. The problem with the message today is not the hostility of the enemies of the cross. The problem with the message today is not the closed doors. The problem with the message today is not the wars in the countries where we're trying to reach people. The problem with the message today is with those of us who are the messengers who have not checked the spiritual health of the church. You and I must realize that we have a message, and it is our mission to get that message out. And that message is the word of reconciliation. He says, who reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation and the word of reconciliation. What is that word? That God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. You may have walked into this room. You may be watching by television. And today you are lost and without Christ. There's a message for you. It is very simple. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that if you would believe in him, you would have everlasting life. That's the message. That he was in Christ bringing you to himself that he was in Christ drawing you into himself, that he was in Christ saying to you, I will not hold your sin, I will not hold your trespasses, I will not hold your guilt against you if you will be reconciled to my son. If you will agree with what my son said about sin, if you will agree that your sin put my son on the cross, then I will not hold your trespasses against you and you will be reconciled with God. That's the ministry. That's the word of reconciliation. Two things about it. There's a world to reach. There is a world to reach. Five billion people in this world. 1.4 billion of them have no access to a copy of the scriptures and have no access to a preacher. There is a world to reach. It is a great commission that we reach that world. It's not a subtle suggestion. It's not a viable option. It's a great commission for us to reach that world. Notice that he says that we, he reconciled us to himself. And then he says we are to be reconciling the world. Now how does that happen? How do we get the world? First of all, we realize that we've been reconciled. Then that makes us being part of the ministry of reconciliation. Now here's what happens to us. The longer we're saved, the more we are content that we are reconciled. Well, I tell you, I'm just glad. I'll just tell you, I tell you, Pastor, I'm just glad that, that my wife and my youngins are saved. I, I'm glad that we know the Lord. I'm glad the fold's completed and that we're saved and we're all in heaven. I'm just grateful for that. I'm just so grateful for that. Well, how, how are you doing on sharing that with somebody else? Well, you know, I don't have that gift, and so I, I really don't tell anybody about that. But I tell you one thing, I'm glad Jesus saved everybody in my family. You see, we get real good about being proud of the fact that God has reconciled us but we flunk being a part of reconciling the world to himself. When you study the missions giving of this church, you will discover that about 15% of the people in this church even give anything to missions. 
you will also discover that less than 10 families give the bulk of our missions offering. If we give $50,000 this year, $60,000 this year to missions, half of that will come from less than 10 out of 1,000 families. Guess what? We don't care about reaching the world. We talk about it. We amen it. We want a good hellfire and brimstone evangelistic preacher come tell people we're going to hell, but we're not committed to doing anything about it. So that's somebody else's message. It's not ours yet. We hadn't met our mission goal in five years. One of the reasons we haven't met it is because one person was giving $20,000 a year to that mission goal who's no longer a member of this church. Now, in those five years, we've had 1,358 people join this church. You divide 1,358 into 20,000, I don't see why we're still missing the money. Because it seems to me like 1,358 could do at least what one did. You see, there is a world to reach. The Foreign Mission Board, we, we have a process that we take missionary candidates through, and we call it the pipeline. Where are they in the pipeline? Shooting in to where they get commissioned and they go overseas. We've got about 3,000 missionaries right now in that pipeline. But if Southern Baptists don't step it up, about 1,500 of them are going to be told, we're glad God's called you, but we don't have any money to send you. And when we get you there, we don't have any money for you to spend so that you can plan and promote, buy Bibles, buy tracts, buy literature. We don't have any of that because Southern Baptists aren't giving. 15 million Southern Baptists. The average gift is less than $20 per member. There's a world to reach, folks. I want you to go home and watch the news this week. I want you to watch those bodies in Bosnia. And I want you to remember that dead body laying there went to heaven or hell. And where it goes partially depends on us. That's not just some corpse. That's a life that was ebbed out. We have eight missionaries right now in Bosnia. They're putting their life on the line. We have missionaries in Sarajevo. We have missionaries in Croatia. We have missionaries in Somalia. We have missionaries in major fields where there's major conflicts in the world. There is a world for us to reach. We're now in over 130 countries. And yet there are cult groups that shame us and their commitment to a lie when we say we're committed to the truth. Whatever you buy this year, make your biggest gift the one you give to Jesus. There's a world to reach. There's a word to preach. The ministry of reconciliation. This is a message, a word, a ministry that is distinctive and dynamic. And before that message becomes clear, it has to be a priority in our lives. Once it is a priority in our lives, it will spill over to those around us. And when it is spilled over to those around us, then it will spread out to the world around us. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. I've got to admit, for most of my life, even as a minister of the gospel, even as a member of the Southern Baptist Convention, even as one who supports the cooperative program, gives to Lottie Moon, for most of my life, I didn't have a very high concept of missions. Now, I'm just being honest with you. Missions was something old ladies did. They met together, and they did a little program, and that's what they did. And missions was about some lady that died on a boat named Lottie Moon who desperately needed some makeup. I mean, missions was something else, somebody else. And then, to top it all off, they'd show up in our church dressed either in clothes that looked like they were 20 years old or they came in the dress of their native land and they looked stupid to me as a child. And they looked even stupider when I was a teenager. And they come and they got all these outfits on. I'm going, golly, that is stupid looking. And I hope God doesn't call me to missions. I, 
You know, I like blue jeans too much. Good grief, look at that. And I thought they went to seminary so they could learn how to run a slide projector. So they could set the screen up and go, this is an apartment complex in Hong Kong. These are people in Hong Kong. These are more people in Hong Kong. You can see the traffic in Hong Kong. This is our family standing outside our apartment in Hong Kong. Would you give your life to missions? And all of you have heard missionaries like that, haven't you? And so what we did is we relegated it to ladies and to little children. And so we send them off to GAs and RAs, and we say, that's, that's good, that's good for them. They ought to learn about the world, they ought to care about the world. But I tell you what, us men, you know, send me to Africa and let me hunt a lion, but I ain't going over there and tell anybody about Jesus. Now, can I take my guns? I'll go. But I'm not sure I care about those people. I'm not sure they've become personal to me. So let me give you three things to do to make a difference in missions. First of all, the love of Jesus must control you. The love of Jesus must control you. Now, any person that tells you that missions is not their thing is also admitting to you that they don't believe in the Great Commission. And if they don't believe in the Great Commission, it means they don't believe the Word. And if they don't believe the Word, it means they don't believe in Jesus, and you need to share the Gospel with them. They're just religious. They've got a form of religion, but they don't have the power. The Great Commission controls us. The love of Christ controls us. What did God love? The world. What are we to love that He controls us with? The world. That world begins the minute you pull off this parking lot. That's what controls us. That's what touches us. That's what moves us. That's what we cry over. That's what we weep over. That's what we pray over. How are you going to do that? Well, hopefully you've been saving some change. Your change can change the world, and you're going to get together maybe Christmas Eve and count all that out and put it back in the jar, and then on Christmas Day we're going to bring a gift to Jesus. Seems appropriate, doesn't it? That on the day that we celebrate the birth of Christ, you don't go to a birthday party without a gift, do you? You don't just show up just to eat the cake and drink the punch and play the games and then say, sorry, I didn't bring a gift. No, you go get one. Well, you've been collecting one and we're going to bring it and we're going to put those jars on this altar. That's one way that the love of Christ can control you is by you visibly expressing that you're committed to missions. Secondly, parents and grandparents need to model missions. Parents and grandparents need to model missions. For instance, on the back of our prayer sheet every week on Wednesday nights, we list the names of missionaries and something that's going on in their area. We may list a country that's only 1% Christian. Take that prayer sheet and pray for those people. That is why it's on there. If you walk into our intercessory prayer chapel to the left, there's a desk there and there's a little revolving stand and, and there's information on missions. I get about 70 letters from missionaries about every quarter. And we update that as much as we can with information about missions and missionaries and what's going on around the world. We have missionaries in countries, we can't even tell you they're there. We have missionaries that when you write them, you can't even make a reference to the fact that you're praying for them. You can't make a reference in that letter to Jesus Christ. You can't make a reference in that letter to the Holy Spirit or anything to do with the church because their mail is open and if they are discovered to be missionaries in those countries, they'll be expelled. You say, well, I don't know those people. Let me ask you, what if you were their parents back home who were depending on 15 million Southern Baptists to support them in prayer. Pray for them. When the news comes on and you see a foreign country, pray for our missionaries in that country. You don't even have to know them by name. 
Pray for people that are spreading the gospel in those countries. Pray for people that are working for the kingdom of God in those areas. Pray for them. God has given us a ministry of reconciliation. And part of that is to pray for those who are involved in the ministry of reconciliation. Learn about missionaries. Find out what they're doing. Read the biographies of missionaries. Develop a world consciousness. I've got a place in my office where when I get letters from missionaries, I save the stamps from those countries. Because when I do that, I can show those to my kids and say, this came from a missionary. A missionary took time to do this. We have a missionary who's spoken in our church a few years ago. And he wrote me a letter this week, and he said, it's very tough for us to find resource material here. Would you send us some books, and would you send us some tapes, and would you send us some material so we can have some resources for preaching? See, you need to model missions. You do that by praying for missionaries. You do that by exposing your children to opportunities. My friend Wayne Watson does something on Christmas Day that I think is phenomenal. His family has done it since they were little. On Christmas Day, they go out and they take baskets of goodies and food and things like that and they deliver it into the lowest socioeconomic level in Houston, Texas. Because they want to remember that for those people, they don't know Christmas is about Christ. But in giving to them, they are expressing to them the ministry of reconciliation. There's a third thing. Not only should the love of Christ control us, not only should you model missions, but thirdly, fulfill your calling. Look at verse 20. Fulfill your calling. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You see, you're an ambassador for Christ. Fulfill your calling as an ambassador. You are to speak on His behalf. You are to act on His authority. You are to build up His kingdom. When you speak, you speak as though you are speaking for Christ. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Our life, our ministry, our calling is to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. What could motivate us to do that? Let's go back to the first. The love of Christ controls us. Excuse me, Paul. Paul, let me ask you a question. How could a man so stuck in the Jewish tradition, how could one who so hated the church now change and share the gospel around the world and risk his life and go to prison and be beaten and stand before Agrippa when the opportunity presents itself and stand before Festus who said, you're mad, you're crazy, you're out of your mind. How could you do that, Paul? Oh, that's simple to answer. The love of Christ controls me. Paul, wouldn't it have been easier to just pastor a church in a nice little town than to go out in the highways and the hedges and on the ships and share the gospel and be beaten up? Wouldn't it have been easier? In fact, Paul, most of those people didn't even appreciate what you were doing. They never appreciated all that you were involved in. How in the world, what difference does it make? They're nasty people. They're ugly people. They're dirty people. Why do it? The love of Christ controls me. Let me ask you. Does the love of Christ control you? If it does, then His message will in fact be our mission. Tom Eliff shared with me the story of being in communist China about a year ago. He was speaking in a church where 2,500 people were present and when they came to the end of service, they took the Lord's Supper. And so when they were beginning to, the process of taking the Lord's Supper, 1,000 of the 2,500 people got up and left. And Tom was on the platform with the pastor, and he turned to the pastor and said, why are those people leaving? He said, well, we have some freedom in China. The government's opening us to us, but it is, you know, the last communist stronghold. And he said, those people 
enjoy the music, and they like the services, and they enjoy being around Christians because Christians have so much joy and happiness and peace in their lives. They enjoy being a part of what's going on. But they're not ready to go all the way with Jesus. Because to go all the way with Jesus and to be able to take the Lord's Supper in our culture means that you have to come to the front of the church, you have to give your name, where you live, and where you work, and profess publicly that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Master of your life. And He is your ruler. He is your controller. He's your boss. He's your dictator. And you serve Him above all others. And when you do that, you automatically run the risk of losing your job, losing your home, losing your family, or maybe losing your life. And those thousand who just left don't want to lose it for Jesus. Let me ask you, if that were the condition for the Lord's Supper in this church, how many of us would have to leave because the love of Christ has not controlled us to the point that we are willing to lose it all for Him? Would you stand with me with heads bowed and eyes closed, please? This is your invitation to be part of the excitement of worship every week at this time at Sherwood Baptist Church, located at 2201 Whispering Pines Road in Albany. favorite sermon is the one from Jude, but I just can't remember that title. Has the pastor ever preached a series on spiritual gifts? There was a great sermon on prayer about a month ago, but I can't remember what the date was. If you've ever experienced these situations, the First Fruits Ministries tape catalog is what you need. In it, you'll find sermon titles, dates they were given, cross-references by books of the Bible, series titles, and even revivals and conferences at Sherwood. The First Fruits Ministries tape catalog, listing sermons by Pastor Michael Catt, and so much more. Just what I needed. For your free copy, write to Tape Catalog in care of Sherwood Baptist Church, 2201 Whispering Pines Road, Albany, Georgia, 31707. This is what I was looking for. 